is coming imminently. And I want to let everybody know, I will not normally bog down this much when we get into just three verses of Scripture, but the doctrine of imminence is so prevalent in the book of Revelation, it bookends the entire book in chapter 1 and chapter 22. I thought it was necessary to get into that doctrine. And the last thing I want for, to happen is for you to say, you know, as we're in the study in Revelation and we talk about imminence, you have all these questions in your mind about different passages in the New Testament. I want, that's why I wanted to go through not only the epistles, but today we're going to get into the Gospels as well and show that imminence really is something taught throughout the entirety of the New Testament. Now, I left off in a passage in James 5, if you recall. In James 5, 8, James said that the coming of the Lord is near. And remember the term coming there is parousia. And recall that we had defined parousia as a complex of events. So yes, it's the second advent, but there's a complex of events associated with it. And we prove that by comparing Luke 17:26, which talks about the days, plural, of the Son of Man. And we said that was synonymous with Matthew 24, 37, the parousia of the Son of Man. So if you could make an equation, the parousia is equal to the days, plural, of the Son of Man. So the best way to put in your mind, what is this parousia? Think of it as the complex of events in Daniel's 70th week. It is bookended by the bodily arrival of Jesus Christ at the beginning to bring his church to heaven. And then it is bookended at the end by the bodily return of Jesus Christ to bring the kingdom to Israel. In between is Jesus Christ wrestling the kingdom from Antichrist in the world that is in opposition to him. We see that in Revelation 7. They are waging war against the Lamb, but he overcomes them. Okay? So that's how we should understand the parousia. Now, it's said, notice, that the parousia, the coming, is near. And we said that that was a perfect active indicative verb. Now, that's a mouthful. But the significance of that perfect verb, remember, is that it talks about an action that was complete in the past. That's why it's called a perfect. It's perfect. It's complete. But the emphasis on the perfect tense verb is the ramifications or consequences that are with you in the present. So what was the action that was completed in the past that would render the parousia near now? It's the first advent of Christ. Since the death, burial, resurrection, and ascension of Christ, that act was complete or perfect, the lasting ramifications that are presently with us are the impending day of the Lord, the coming, the parousia, whatever you want to call it, is near. Is everybody with me? Now, what I want to do is I want to give you, write this passage down. You don't have to turn to it unless you're quick with your, quick on the draw, like quick draw McGraw. First uh, Peter 4, 7. There's a parallel idea that Peter gives us, and I've got to find it here on my screen. 1 Peter 4, 7, listen to what Peter says. He says, I won't read you even the whole verse. He says, the end of all things is near. And he uses the same verb, the perfect active indicative of ingizo. Now, notice he's calling all things, the end of all things are near. What are the end of all things? Well, all things would be the things associated with this age. So, 
realize that 1 Peter 4, 7 is synonymous then with what James 5, 8 is teaching. And the reason I mention that is there's some wonderful commentaries on 1 Peter 4, 7. Some of our best scholars are those who comment on this passage, and they admit that, yes, imminence is taught. Let me read those to you. This is Thomas Schreiner, New American Commentary. He's commenting on 1 Peter 4, 7, but because 1 Peter 4, 7 is teaching the same thing as James 5, 8, he's really commenting on that as well. Listen to what Tom Schreiner says. He says, The reason the end is near is that the ministry, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ have inaugurated the last days. Now let's stop there. That's exactly what the perfect tense indicates. Action completed in the past, first advent. Ramification still with us today, the end is at hand, the parousia. And he goes on, he says, In the New Testament, the theme that the end of history is imminent is often sounded, unquote. And then he cites a bunch of passages, many of which you and I have already looked at. Now, why is that significant? Well, here you have one of the best scholars in evangelicalism. Bob sat under him at Bethel. Uh, he was a wonderful scholar, still is. And Tom Schreiner says, yes, the New Testament is clearly teaching the doctrine of imminence. So this isn't just something that you and I are concocting here. It's widely regarded in evangelical scholarship. Here's Peter Davids. He writes in the New International Commentary in the New Testament about this passage. He says this, quote, This expectation of the imminent inbreaking of God's full and final rule conditions all New Testament teaching. And without grasping it, one can hardly understand the radical ethical stance taken within any of the New Testament literature, unquote. Wow. Peter Davids is saying understanding the doctrine of imminence is essential for us to understand all of the ethical exhortations within the New Testament. Why? Because as Bob has laid out in the means of grace, it is a promise to be believed, a promise revealed to us through the means of grace of Scripture. And what is the great promise? That this kingdom can break forth at any time, and therefore you and I should live godly lives, and therefore you and I can persevere knowing that the best is yet to come. Remember, the battle for sanctification is what? It's a battle to believe. If I really believe that this kingdom can break forth and will break forth at any time, I will live for the king and his kingdom, not the fleeting pleasures of sin. That's why it's so critical. All right? Now, not everybody agrees with this. And I'm going to cite a friend, and you all know him, Ryan Habanaugh. And I want to let everybody know that if you're listening to this and you go to Ryan Habanaugh's church, you're sitting under a wonderful scholar and a great teacher, and you will hear the Bible taught with excellence. You will hear the gospel proclaimed. He is wonderful in every way. And so the reason I'm going to show you that he disagrees with this is because I have such a high respect for his mind. But I want you to interact with some ideas of those who say, no, I don't believe in the doctrine of imminence. Uh, Ryan Habanaugh, in his book, The Parable of the Fig Tree, he says that the doctrine of imminence is a phantom doctrine. Now, here's the question. Who's right? Is it Tom Schreiner, Peter Davids, or... Is it, is it Ryan Habanaugh? Well, of course, the scripture is the ultimate authority. But I want you to be aware of one of the objections that Ryan has. And what he does is write this passage down, John eleven fifty five. He uses John eleven fifty five to supposedly show a contradiction between the doctrine of imminence 
being taught here in James 5.8. What John 11.55 says is this. It says, Now the Passover of the Jews was near. Now I'll just leave it there. That's all you need to know for our purposes. The Passover of the Jews was near. And listen to how he comments on that. He says, quote, this is Ryan from his book on page 158. He says, quote, obviously the Passover was not going to occur at any moment. On the contrary, the Passover, which had a fixed day, had drawn near because of a past action. Therefore, this is confirming evidence that the declaration, the Lord is near, does not imply an any moment coming of Christ. Okay, unquote. So do you notice what Ryan is saying? He's saying, look, that nearness is used in the context of something that is a known day. In other words, the Passover, they knew when the Passover was going to happen. So what's all this nonsense about James 5.8 teaching this any moment idea of imminence? After all, the same terminology is used with a date that couldn't happen at any moment. Well, here's the confusion that I think is going on. First of all, the Passover, I think Ryan is exactly right. It has to do with what? A known day. Okay, it's a known day. So in other words, you knew that on every 14th day of Nisan, what would happen? Passover. So if someone said to you, Passover is near, you would just simply look at your calendar if you were a Jew. And if it was the 12th day of Nisan, you would say, well, Passover is near. It's two days away. But the problem with comparing that to the parousia is that the parousia is an unknown day. So when an unknown day is declared to be near, how near is it? Is it two seconds, two minutes, two days, two weeks, two months, two years? You don't know. It's near. So you see we're comparing now apples and oranges. So think about it this way. When you and I studied the laws of logic in our logic course, remember we studied the law of non-contradiction, which says if A, then not non-A, at the same time and in the same relationship. That last clause, the same time and the same relationship, remember we said that means you have to be comparing two like categories. If there's truly a contradiction, you can't be comparing apples and oranges. You have to be comparing apples and apples, oranges and oranges. But here we have a known day and an unknown day. So do you see, I think the objection doesn't work. Of course, a known day is not imminent because even though you know that it's near, you know what the exact date did. It's the 14th day of Nisan. But again, with an unknown day, how near, you don't know. Two seconds, two minutes, etc. You just don't know. All right, now, how do we know that the parousia is an unknown day? Well, Jesus tells us, Matthew 24, 36. He says, but of that day and hour, no one knows. Not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father alone. The very next verse, then, he talks about the parousia. So what is he talking about? The parousia, no one knows when it's going to break forth. By the way, notice here in Matthew 24, 36, Jesus says, of that day and hour. Realize that we can't be too obtuse about this and say, well, Jesus is certainly teaching that we'll know the season, but we won't know the 24-hour period or the 60-minute period. No, he's using the day to refer to the day of the Lord and the hour to the hour of trial coming upon the whole world. That's called a hendiadus. A hendiadus means one through two. So he's using two words to teach one thing. 
that the outbreak of this parousia, you don't know. You can't know when it's coming. Now, just lest you think that it's my idea that hour and day doesn't just refer to a 24-hour period and a 60-minute period, listen to what Craig Blomberg says in the New American Commentary about this passage. He says, all these questions, quote, this is Craig Blomberg, all these questions about the time of Christ's return are misguided because no one knows but the Father, I'm sorry, because no one but the Father knows their answers anyway. Day and hour are regularly used throughout Scripture for time in general, not just 24-hour or 60-minute periods. And then he cites a bunch of examples from Matthew, which is good. You always want to look at how the author himself uses the terms. And then he says, day especially reflects the Old Testament day of the Lord, unquote. I think he's exactly right. Now, let me give you some further proof of that. Turn your Bibles to Revelation chapter 3, verse 10. Revelation 3.10, and as you're turning to Revelation 3.10, I will cite to you from 1 Thessalonians 5.4. Because in 1 Thessalonians 5.4, which is all about the parousia, the day of the Lord, Paul says, You, brethren, are not in darkness, that the day would overtake you like a thief. Now, in that 1 Thessalonians 5.4, day certainly is more than a 24-hour period. It's a broad day a broad period of time. Okay, now, in the same way, as you look at Revelation 3.10, notice this is the promise that Jesus gives to the church in Philadelphia. He says, quote, because you have kept the word of my perseverance, I also will keep you from the hour of testing, that hour which is about to come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. Now, how many in here would say, well, when Jesus is referring to that hour of testing, he's only referring to a 60-minute period. Well, no, we know that he's really referring to the last seven years, Daniel's 70th week, okay? Or let's just say you're not convinced of that. At least everyone would admit that it's the last three and a half years. I think it's the last seven, okay? But the point is it's certainly longer period of time than just 60 minutes. So the point being that in Matthew 24, 36, no one has any earthly idea when this parousia is going to come. Why? Because it's near. How near? Don't know. Two seconds, two minutes, two years, we just don't know. Okay? So again, the objection using John 11.55 doesn't work. Why? Because you can't compare apples and oranges. You can't compare a known day with an unknown day. All right? Now, let me just stop there for a moment and ask if there are any questions. Does anybody have any thoughts on that? No? Okay. Here's what I'm going to do. Oh, I'm sorry, Jim. Uh, on Daniel's 70th week prophecy, the thing that kicks that off is the decree from the Persian king for the Jews to go back and rebuild the temple right. to Jerusalem. Could you make an analogy and compare the rapture of the church happening immediately prior to the beginning of Daniel's 70th week for the church to go home to their father? Yeah, I, it, it is. It's them going home. That's exactly right. Yeah, is that your point? Um, yep, they're going home. That's right. Um, you know, Jim, you had made a good comment to me um, some months back. You said, you know, if the first 69 weeks of Daniel was Israel-centric, why would the 70th week be any different? And that's true, and that's why... Now, I'm not saying that there aren't Gentiles saved during the tribulation period. I think there obviously are. But think about today, dear ones. Today, the majority of people being saved are Gentiles, and there's a remnant of Jews. 
In the 70th week, that seems to reverse. The majority are Jews, but there's going to be a Gentile remnant, too, that will be saved as well. So think about the 70th week. We are raptured out, the church. Jews and Gentiles who believe in Jesus Christ will be taken out at the beginning of the 70th week. At the end of the 70th week, the focal point is the kingdom coming to Israel. And by the way, that's good news for us. Why? Because it's our kingdom too. Okay? So thank you, yes, for that. By the way, now, here's what I want to do. I'm going to transition out of the epistles into the Olivet Discourse and show you imminence there. That's in the Gospels. But here's what I'm going to have to do. I have so much data to give to you. I'm going to go on a rant. I'm going to go for a long period of time to get you through Matthew 24. What I'm going to do is have you hold the questions to the end because I want you to see it unveiled to you. Just just let it flow. You're going to be drinking from a fire hose a little bit, but just let it come and just get as much as you can because we're going to go through the Olivet Discourse and I'm going to lay out imminence there in. Okay, now the Olivet Discourse, remember, we're reading in the Gospels, Mark 13, Matthew 24, Luke 21. All right? The Olivet Discourse is the most significant eschatological teaching apart from the book of Revelation. In fact, your view of the Olivet Discourse will really determine your view of eschatology, period. That's why it's so critical that we get this down. Okay? That's why I want to incorporate this in our understanding of the book of Revelation. Now, saying that, I want to just talk about some of the difficulties within the Olivet Discourse. When I used to read the Olivet Discourse, it was an enigma all wrapped up in a question mark. I couldn't make heads or tails of it. And the difficulty I think that all of you and I experience is that you have two things going on. First of all, you have preceding signs, but you also have the teaching of imminence. And that's what seems to give confusion in the Olivet Discourse. You have preceding signs. In other words, in Matthew 24, 33, Jesus says, when you see all these things, these are certainly precursors, he says, recognize that he is near. And you say, aha, there's precursors. We have signs that must happen before. But in other places, like Matthew 24, 36 that we just looked at, no one knows the day or the hour when this parousia comes. You can't know. So naturally, you can't have something that's imminent, but yet that is preceded with, with signs. Okay, that would be a contradiction. Because by definition... Something that's imminent has no precursor. So you say, well, how do we figure this out? Well, fortunately, Matthew has given us the structure in the Greek text itself to help us understand how to figure it all out. And Bob has helped me with this as well. We've done a lot of research in this, and it's been a lot of fun because it's helped us understand Scripture. So here's how I think it should be laid out. When you look at the preceding signs in Matthew 24... Verses 4 through 35, you're talking about all the things within Daniel's 70th week. All right? Now, what do I mean by Daniel's 70th week? Let me point on the board here. Notice I have this diagram. Typically, when you see this diagram, I'm usually referring to the last seven years. Okay? So think about you and I are living somewhere here during the church age. Now, when does this break forth? We don't know. Okay? So this is the last seven years. And then at the end of it, of course, would be the millennial kingdom. In Matthew 24, 4 through 35, all the signs, which you'll find, occur within the 70th week. Okay, so if you're living within that 70th week, you'll know. You'll know that the end is near. 
If you see the abomination that causes desolation, you know three and a half years later, the kingdom comes. Okay, you'll know all these signs. But when we get to verse 36 through 44, there's a discourse marker. This is not subjective. This isn't Eric Dahmer wishing it to be true. There's a discourse marker in the Greek text, peri-death. And we'll talk about it more, but it gives us a clue that now Jesus is talking about a different subject. The subject now is, well, when will this 70th week break out? And then he says, you can't know. You can't know. And he says it six different ways, so you and I don't miss it. Okay? So when you're within the 70th week, you have signs. But when it comes in verse 36 to 44, when the 70th week will break out, you, you can't know. That's how he structures it, and that eliminates then the confusion. Okay? All right, now, let me talk about the setting of the Olivet Discourse. The setting of the Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24 begins in Matthew chapter 23. In Matthew chapter 23, I'll focus on the last two verses. Remember, Jesus has excoriated the Jewish leadership because of their idolatry. And then in verse 38, listen to what he says. He says, Behold, your house is being left to you desolate. The term left there is aphaemi. It's a term for abandonment. All right, he's abandoning them to judgment. All right, now, he goes on to say in verse 39, he says, You will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of Yahweh. Now, what's that from? Well, that's that messianic passage in Psalm 118.22. So he tells them, this is his conclusion when he leaves the temple, you're left desolate and you will not see me again, that is the living God, until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of Yahweh. That is until they come to faith. All right, now here's what I want you to think about. This is the second person, the Trinity. This is the Son, the very glory of God. It says in Colossians 2.9 that the fullness of deity dwells within him bodily. Now he is leaving the temple just as the glory of God left the temple in Ezekiel chapter 10 and Ezekiel chapter 11. Now when it says in Ezekiel eleven twenty three that God in his glory left the temple, where did he go? He went out to the Mount of Olives. Where does Jesus go right after he pronounces these things? He goes to the Mount of Olives. And that's the setting. And in fact, as we read Matthew 24, 1 through 3, notice there's an and at the very beginning. That's chi in Greek, and that's a, 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 in, sorry, a discourse marker. And that discourse marker shows you that there's a continuation of thought from Matthew 23. In other words, it's not, it's not a paragraph break. It's saying, oh, by the way, and this happens as well. Okay, so this is connected to what Jesus did in Matthew 23. He's abandoned the temple. It's left to them desolate. And guess where he goes? He goes to the Mount of Olives, just as God did so many years ago. It says, Jesus came out from the temple and was going away when his disciples came up to point out the temple and the buildings to him. Now, let me just stop there. I think Jesus is hot under the collar. How do we know that? Well, Matthew 23, he calls them all a brood of vipers. That's a good indication. And I think the disciples are trying anything to change the subject. Hey, Jesus, what do you think of the way the building looks at least? You know, they're trying to... Uh, that's my sense of the text. And he, even then, he's not calmed down. It says, he said to them, do you not see all these things? Truly, I say to you, not one stone here will be left upon another, which will not be torn down. Verse 3, it says, as he was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us, when will these things happen? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Now, the first thing I want to point out here is notice the Mount of Olives. Again, that's significant. 
God left the Mount of Olives from that area when he left in Ezekiel 11, when the glory of God departed because of Israel's idolatry. Now God, again, is leaving that same direction because of Israel's idolatry. They had missed their Messiah. All right? The Mount of Olives sets in our minds the eschatological flavor for the entire passage. Why? Because to these Jewish minds who had been learning Torah, Tanakh, their entire, bi- their entire life, they've been reading the Bible that they had, they would have understood Zechariah chapter 14. Zechariah chapter 14 promised that one day the nations would come against them, and you get the imagery that they would sack the majority of Jerusalem, but then the Messiah would return. And where would he come? To the Mount of Olives. And he would fight for Israel at that time. We know in Acts chapter 1, when Jesus ascends, remember, the angels say, Men of Galilee, why do you gaze skyward? This, same, this Jesus coming back in like manner. Where did he go up from? He went up from the Mount of Olives. Where is he returning to? The Mount of Olives. Just as predicted in Zechariah 14. So that's in the back of the minds of the disciples. So as they ask the question, it's loaded with end time thoughts. Okay, and so notice the question here in verse 3. I have part of it highlighted red, the other part highlighted blue. There's really two questions. The first part of the question is, tell us when will these things happen? Now realize these things is plural. And the implication then is these things is not just referring to the destruction of the temple, but a wider corpus of events associated with the abandonment of the temple, with you will not see me until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of Yahweh. And confirmation of that is notice the second part of the question. They're talking about the parousia, the coming, and the end of the age. Now, I'm not the only one that notices this. The net Bible translators pick up on this, and they say, quote, because the phrase, these things, is plural, more than the temple's destruction is in view. The question may presuppose that such a catastrophe signals the end, unquote. I think that's exactly right. Now, why is that critical? Well, it shows us that 70 AD really isn't the focal point. It's the end, right before the Messianic age. All right. Now, also, I want you to see what's highlighted in blue. That's really only one question. When they ask, what will be the sign of your coming in the end of the age? The parousia is the end of the age. They knew Messiah comes or seven years, and after that, what is birth is the Messianic age. So really, that's redundant. When they're asking, what will be the sign of your coming in the end of the age? The coming brings the end of the age. So there's really just one question there. So we have two questions. One highlighted in red, tell us when will these things be? And what's in blue, what will be the sign? All right, now that ends up being the structure of the entire discourse. Let me show you how this works out. The first question in Matthew 24, 3, when will these things happen? The second part of the question is, what will be the sign of your coming in the end of the age? By the way, let me stop here for just a moment. Matthew is known as meticulous Matthew. He loves to use chiasms. Okay, and you'll see a chiasm. If you don't know what that is, you'll see it on the screen here. It's simply a structure where, well, you'll see it. You'll, you'll see a little chiasm. <laughs> okay, it's a structure that a lot of these Hebrew writers use to structure their thoughts. Okay, so these are the two questions that are asked. Now, notice how Jesus answers them. When we get to Matthew 24, 4 through 35, Jesus answers the second question first. Is everybody with me? Not the first question. He answers the second question first regarding the signs. What are the signs? And remember, all of the signs occur when? 
within the 70th week. But all of a sudden, you come to this discourse marker in verse 36, Perry death. Write it down, tell a friend, plant a flag, wake a neighbor. Perry death is a discourse marker. It's not subjective, it is objective. You and I use paragraph breaks. The biblical writers in Greek use peri death. It's a new subject. It should be translated now concerning. And then he answers the question about what? About when. When will these things happen? In verses 36 through 44, the answer is you just can't know. That's when that 70th week will break forth. You don't know. And so, again, that's how he's structuring the entire all of a discourse. And that helps us then understand how can you have signs but also the doctrine of imminence. Okay? Now, the next thing I have to show you is I want to prove to you exegetically that as Jesus lays out the signs, these are signs within Daniel's 70th week. They are not signs that are occurring during the church age now. Okay? So that's what we're going to see then in Matthew 24, 4 through 8. It says, And Jesus answered and said to them, See to it that no one misleads you. For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and will mislead many. You will be hearing of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not frightened. And notice this phrase. For those things must take place, but that is not yet the end. Now let me stop there. Notice the phrase that I have underlined. Those things must take place. Where did we see that earlier? We saw that in Daniel 2.28, didn't we? The things that must take place in the last days. It serves as the bookends of the book of Revelation. Revelation 1.1, he's going to show them the things that must take place soon. So this ends up being a technical phrase talking about not just the inner advent church age, but the eschatological age, that is the last seven years. Okay, so you're probably asking, they're going to be hearing of wars and rumors of wars. Why is that going on? Well, for the first three and a half years, Antichrist has made a covenant with Israel. They do have, quote unquote, peace. But they're going to be hearing of wars and rumors of wars around the rest of the world. But they're not to be frightened yet because the midpoint has not happened. At the midpoint, Antichrist breaks that covenant and then he launches a war against them. Now in verse 7, he says, For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. And in various places there will be famines and earthquakes. Let me stop there. That is identical to what is stated by John in Revelation chapter 6, your first four seals. First four seals. Now, what can we conclude from that? We can conclude that what Jesus is talking about here is synonymous with what's going on in Revelation chapter 6. Revelation chapter 6 is in the day of the Lord. How do we know that? Because the wrath of God is being poured out. You and I have been guaranteed to be spared from the wrath of God. 1 Thessalonians 5, 9, Revelations 3, 10. Okay? Is everybody with me? All right. Now, so we know that that's synonymous with Revelation 6. Now we come to a very key passage, verse 8. Jesus says, but all these things, the things that have preceded that he's just written about now, are merely the beginning of, aha, birth pangs. Now, what's so exciting about birth pangs? Well, birth pangs is odin in the Greek, and it is a technical word used for the day of the Lord in the Old Testament prophets. Write down Isaiah 13, 8. Isaiah 13, 8, listen to what Isaiah says. He says, they will be terrified. Now, this happens in the day of the Lord, when judgment comes. He says, pains and anguish, there's Odin, that labor pains will take hold of them, 
They will writhe like a woman in labor. They will look at one another in astonishment, their faces aflame. That's what happens in the day of the Lord. You see the same thing in Isaiah 26, Isaiah 66. The same concept is taught in Jeremiah chapter 30. Okay, so this is a technical expression teaching us that this is occurring in the 70th week. Okay, now why is that important? Well, when you go to prophecy conferences, you'll inevitably have people take out all the different newspaper clippings of the day. And they'll say, well, look, there's wars and rumors of wars and all these things that are happening. And they're assuming that Jesus here in the passage that we're looking at is talking about the church age. He is not. He is talking specifically here about the first three and a half years within Daniel's 70th week. Now, let me prove that to you. Notice this term birth pangs, Odin again in the Greek, is used by Paul also talking about the day of the Lord in 1 Thessalonians 5, verses 2 through 3. Paul says, For you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. Now, let me stop there. How does a thief come? No precursor. Let me continue. He says, While they are saying peace and safety, then destruction will come upon them suddenly like Odin, like labor pains upon a woman with child, and they will not escape. Now, here's what's so fascinating. The Apostle Paul builds his entire teaching out of 1 Thessalonians 5 off of the Olivet Discourse. We know that because there's so much similar terminology. Let me show you some of the similar terminology. We have common language, 1 Thessalonians 5 and the Olivet Discourse. We have the term suddenly, the term come. We have the term escape in that day. We have the term watch and drunkenness. And we have the term Odin, which is labor pains. Okay, now that's a lot. And 1 Thessalonians 5 isn't very long. Now, what does that prove? It proves to us Paul took his data from the Olivet Discourse. Why is that important? Because that means Paul and Jesus are not using Odin labor pains differently. If Paul is using labor pains, referring to the day of the Lord, and he is, how do you think Jesus was using it? He was referring to the day of the Lord as well. So he's not talking about the inner advent church age. He's talking about what's inside the day of the Lord, Daniel's 70th week. And labor pains is a key term that proves that to us. Is everybody with me there? Okay, now let's move on for the sake of time. Jesus now is going to switch to the last three and a half years from verses 9 through 14. He says, then they will deliver you up to tribulation. Now the peace treaty is off. This whole passage is Israel-centric. Now the world and Antichrist and his forces are going to go after Israel and try to wipe them out. He says, they will deliver you up to tribulation and will kill you. And you will be hated by all nations because of my name. Verse 10, at that time, many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. Many false prophets will arise and will mislead many. Because lawlessness is increased, most people's love will grow cold, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. This gospel of the kingdom shall be preached to the whole world as a testimony to all the nations, and then the end will come. Notice this phrase where it says, and then the end will come. That's the end of the tribulation. Okay, the gospel is going to be proclaimed to all nations. Remember in the book of Revelation, God is so concerned with that, he even sends angels out to proclaim it. The 144,000 aren't even sufficient. He sends angels out to do it. Okay, then the end comes. So now from verse 9 to 14, he's gone to the end of the 70th week, the end of the tribulation. By way of recapitulation, 
Jesus in verse 15 goes to back to the midpoint of the tribulation. And he says, therefore, when you see, so here's a major sign, the abomination of desolation, which is spoken of through Daniel, the prophet standing in the holy place. Let the reader understand. Let the reader understand is a phrase that's used by both Mark and Matthew. So it's not idiomatic to the author. It's what Jesus said. So he wants us to understand Daniel 9. Why? Because it's about the 70th week. The abomination that causes desolation has not yet occurred. The Romans never did that in 70 AD. This is about the future. Another proof that this isn't fulfilled in 70 AD, nor is it fulfilled in the church age. This is about Daniel's 70th week at the midpoint. Now, here's what he does then. He goes on in verse, I'm going to have to skip down. Um, Well, you know what? Let me back up once. Let me just read to you. I want to read to you verses 16 through 20. I don't have it on the board, but I want you to see that he continues the thought. He says, then those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains. Let me stop there for a moment. Why does he say those who are in Judea flee to the mountains? Because this is Israel-centric. I made a little tongue-in-cheek remark once when I was teaching this discourse. What are you and I to do if we were alive during this time period, living in Minnesota, and we see all these things? He's saying if you're in Judea, flee to the mountains, where do you and I go? Do we go to Buck Hill? Right? <laughs> see, there's, people say, well, if this doesn't apply to the church, you're not a, you know, this has, if, if you're saying this applies to Israel, then it doesn't apply to us. Well, I'm saying, no, it does apply to us. The question is, how does it apply to us? You and I as Gentile believers should be absolutely ecstatic that God is faithful to bring his kingdom to Israel. This whole passage is Israel-centric. Let me read on. Verse 17, he says, Whoever is on the housetop must not go down and get the things that are in the house. Whoever is in the field must not turn back to get his cloak. But to those who are pregnant and those who are nursing and babies, he says, Woe. He says, Pray that your flight will not be in winter or on the Sabbath. Okay, now, let me stop there. The Sabbath is an issue where? It's in Israel. Is the Sabbath an issue in Minnesota? Nope. But it would be an issue in Israel. This whole passage is Israel-centric. First 69 weeks are about Israel. The 70th week is as well. And that's our blessing because we're grafted into those promises through faith in Christ. Okay, now let me move on then. We get to verses 21 through 22 then. He says, for then there will be great tribulation. Okay, that's the last three and a half years. He says, such has not occurred since the beginning of the world until now nor ever will. Unless those days, these are the days that he's just been talking about. Unless those days had been cut short, no life would have been saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days, the days that he's been talking about, he can't be talking about the church age. It's those days. And he's talking about if those days won't be cut short, what? No flesh would survive. Remember the logic. In the book of Revelation, the worst days ever are being described. You lose a third of humanity in Revelation 9. The worst days are in the future because the worst days have not occurred. Okay, so if the worst days are coming, and this is about the worst days, you can imagine that this is about what's coming, not the church age. Is everybody with me? Okay, so this is about, again, the 70th week. If those days had not been cut short, nobody would survive. Now, they're cut short to seven years. Then we get to Matthew 24, 23, and then verses 27 through 28. He says, Then if anyone says to you, Behold, here's the Christ, or there he is, do not believe him. Now in verse 27, why? He says, For just as lightning comes from the east and flashes even to the west, so will the parousia, 
There's the coming again of the Son of Man be. Verse 20, wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. That idiomatic expression simply states you can't miss it. If someone says, no, the Messiah is coming, and he's secretly over here, he's secretly over there, don't listen to him. The parousia, Jesus' return, both in the beginning and the end, will not be a silent event. It will be observable by all. You will not be mistaken. You can't miss it. That's the whole point. Okay? He continues. Verse 29, he says, But immediately after the tribulation of those days... So again, he's talking about those days that he's just described. That's the tribulation, not the church period. He says, The sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. And the stars will fall from the sky and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Now, here's what's interesting about this. Remember I talk about birth pangs? Odin in the Greek, Septuagint, Isaiah 13.8. Isaiah 13.10, just two verses after talking about labor pains in the day of the Lord, it talks about the sun being darkened and the moon not giving its light. So that proves it's the same concept being taught. But what's ironic is Jesus borrowing almost word for word from the Septuagint of Joel chapter 3. Joel chapter 3, I'm going to do something I normally don't do. Let me read the last verse first. Notice verse 15. It talks about the sun and the moon grow dark and the stars lose their brightness. Now here's the key. When does that happen? Well, notice Joel chapter 3 verse 2. This is the context. Joel says this at the bequest of the Lord. He says, I will gather all the nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat. Now, Jehoshaphat is the valley of decision. You have Yahweh Shophet. Shophet is judge. He's the judge. So that because they miss Jesus, which is Yahweh is salvation, they get Yahweh is judge. And where does that happen? It happens in the Kidron Valley. That's around Jerusalem. The battle that starts at Armageddon culminates in Jerusalem, just as Zechariah 14 was teaching. So that proves that this is at the end of Daniel's 70th week where the Messiah returns to fight for Israel. That's when the sun and the moon grow dark and the stars lose their brightness. Is everybody with me on that? Okay, so that's at the very end of the seven years. And then you see this, Matthew 24, 30 through 31. It says, and then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky. Now that's another major sign. You have the abomination that causes desolation, major sign. And you also have the Son of Man himself. And then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky. That's Daniel 7:13, the one who comes and brings the kingdom with power and great glory. Verse 31, he will send forth his angels with a great trumpet, and they will gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of the sky to the other. Now, here's what I want you to think about. Notice that phrase where it says the four winds at the very end. What's interesting is in the scriptures, because of Israel's idolatry, They're described in Ezekiel 5, Zechariah chapter 2, as being thrown to the four winds. But the great promise of God, as early as the Pentateuch, Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 4, was that one day God was going to take them back from the four winds and bring them back into Israel. So this whole passage, again, is Israel-centric. Now, is that a blessing to you and I? Yes, because that's our kingdom, too. But it's Israel-centric. So this whole passage about gathering the elect is not about the rapture. In fact, it's a direct allusion to the regathering of Israel, specifically from Isaiah 27. Let me put up Isaiah 27 for you. Isaiah 27, 12 through 13. It says, in that day, what day are they referring to? They're referring to the day of the Lord. It says, in that day, the Lord will start his threshing from the flowing stream of the Euphrates, 
to the brook of Egypt. Remember, that was the original boundaries of Israel that were given by God. They've never had that yet. He says, And you will be gathered up one by one, O sons of Israel. It will come about also in that day that a great trumpet will be blown. And those who are perishing in the land of Assyria and those who are scattered in the land of Egypt will come and worship Yahweh in the holy mountain at Jerusalem. What's very interesting to me about this passage is notice, first of all, he says, You will be gathered up one by one, O sons of Israel. That shows us again that Matthew 24, because it's referring to this as Israel-centric. Now, what's very interesting to me is notice Jesus talks about this great trumpet. The only place in the Old Testament that gadol great and shofar trumpet are put together. The only place, and I say again, the only place in the Old Testament where those two are together is here in Isaiah 27. The only place you will see great trumpet, you'll see great and you'll see trumpet, but you'll never see great trumpet put together. The only place you'll find that is Isaiah 27. So when Jesus is referring to the great trumpet, he's referring directly to Isaiah 27. This whole passage is about the regathering of Israel. Why? Because the rapture's already occurred. That's what it's about. It's Israel-centric. A blessing to you and I. Why? Because it's our kingdom too. It applies to us. God is faithful to his promises. All right, now we come to the end of that section, verses 32 to 35. It says, Now learn the parable from the fig tree. When its branch has already come, become tender and put forth its leaves, you know, no, notice you know, the summer is near. So you too, when you see all these things, recognize that he is near right at the door. Truly I say to you, this generation, please read Bob's article. It proves that this generation is not a 40-year group of people. It is a pejorative linking all unbelievers from those who shed the blood of Zechariah, son of Berechiah, to the righteous blood of Abel. All unbelievers are in this generation. So it's talking about the end of the age. This generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Notice there in verse 32 that you will know. You will know. If you're living in the 70th week of Daniel, you'll know when all these things are going to happen. You will not be taken by surprise. All right? But all of a sudden, when he gets to verse 36, now he switches topics. And how do we know that? Now he's going to answer the first question, when will these things be? We know that because of the discourse marker, peri-death. That is a discourse marker. Again, in English, you use paragraph breaks. Why do you use them? To show that you have a new beginning of a new thought. They don't have paragraphs in Greek. In fact, if you look at their manuscripts, they just run on. So their discourse markers are what? Prepositions. Here you have a discourse marker. So says uh, R.K. Harrison, who writes in the New International Testament of New Testament Theology. I think that's NIDNIT is the acronym. Um, our great new scholar that we have going on here at Gospel of Grace, Adam Aline, would affirm the same thing. He did a lot of work in discourse grammar. He says, yes, this is a... This, so in other words, here's my point. Peride isn't something subjective that we're trying to read into the text. It's objective. Peride should be translated, not but, but now concerning. Paul structures 1 Corinthians that way. He addresses, remember their questions? Well, now concerning marriage, now concerning food offered to idols, now concerning this, now concerning that. It's a discourse marker. Jesus is now answering, when will these things be? He says, now concerning the day and the hour. 
Now remember the day and the hour, we already proved that that's not just a 24-hour period, nor is it just a 60-minute period. It's the day of the Lord and the hour of trial. It's a hendiadis, two ideas or two words that bring one idea. It's the end, the parousia. When does the parousia come? No one knows. Not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father alone. Then he goes on to say, for the coming, there's parousia of the Son of Man, will be just like the days of Noah. Now, what's the significance of the days of Noah? He goes on to say they were eating and drinking, giving in marriage. The point is, life went on as it always had. There was nothing out of the ordinary. They had no sign. There was nothing to tip them off other than they had warnings from the word of God. And sudden judgment came. So that's the way it is in the outbreaking of Daniel's 70th week. You have no warning other than what? The word of God. Jesus says a wicked and adulterous generation seeks after a sign. But none will be given to it except what? The sign of Jonah. What's the sign of Jonah? It's the resurrection of Christ. Where do you find that? The word of God. The only thing that this generation has is the word of God. If they won't believe that, Jesus says, if you won't listen to Moses and the prophets, nor will you be convinced even if someone was raised from the dead. It's all this generation has, and it's all that is required. There's going to be nothing to tip anyone off to the outbreaking of this wrath. There's nothing that they will know. Now, the other thing I want to point out here is notice the coming, the parousia is synonymous with these things. These things is describing all of the things within Daniel's 70th week. So when do all those things come? You don't know. In six different ways, Jesus says you can't know. Now, let me get to my last slide here. Let me just lay it all out for you. Two questions the disciples asked. When will these things be? And what will be the sign of your parousia in the end of the age? Jesus answers the second question first, verses 4 to 35. What will be the sign of your parousy in the end? Here's how he does it. Matthew 24, 4 through 8. He begins by talking about the first three and a half years. Famines, earthquakes, warfare. The identical things seen in Revelation 6. When you get to Revelation chapter, or I'm sorry, Matthew chapter 24, verses 9 through 14. Now he switches to the last three and a half years. You're going to have great tribulation. You're going to have martyrdom in the end. You see that in Revelation 12 through 13. Why? Because there's a reference to 1260 days, the last three and a half years. Now, by way of recapitulation, he goes back to the midpoint and he says, notice the abomination that causes desolation. When you see that happen, then it's time to flee for the mountains if you're in Judea. Because now you know Antichrist has broken his arrangement. As Paul said in 2 Thessalonians 2, the man of lawlessness will set himself up in the temple as God. And then you know we've got big trouble. The great tribulation, the, the time of Jacob's distress, Jeremiah 30, is now breaking forth. Now, from verse 16, all the way to the end of verse 35, he's talking about that last three and a half years. The time of Jacob's distress, the great trib, tribulation period, and the great sign at the end is the sign of the Son of Man who brings the end of the age. And he says, when you see all these things, you know. You won't miss it. You won't be deceived. Don't listen to any of those false prophets who are saying, here's the Messiah, there he is, you'll know. But then he switches, discourse marker, Perry day. Now concerning when will these things happen? He says six different ways you don't know. No one knows the day or the hour. No one knows the day of the Lord or the hour of trial. Verse 37 through 39, it'll be like the days of Noah. Everything was going on as it always has and sudden destruction came. And then he says, by the way, in verse 40 through 42, he says there'll be two in the field and two at the mill. One will be taken and one will be left. Now, let me stop there for just a moment. Some people say, well, those who are taken are taken in judgment, and those who are left 
are left for salvation. That's not true. The term left is a, a family. A family means abandoned. Remember back in Matthew 23, what did Jesus abandon to judgment? The temple. You think he's going to use a family differently? Now? No, he does not. Those who are abandoned are abandoned to judgment. Those who are taken, the term taken is paralambano. Jesus uses that. To, it means to take to oneself. So he, just as it's used in John 14. Remember, Jesus says, I go prepare a place for you so that where I am, there you may be also. He says, I'll take you to be with myself. Paralambano. So that really is the rapture. The rapture comes what? Imminently, you can't know. It's the beginning of the 70th week. That's what he's referring to. Verses 43 through 44, it comes like a thief. Does a thief give you a precursor? Does a, a thief say, you know what? You've got to wait until you see this, then you'll know. No, they don't do that. And in fact, the whole imagery of a thief, the only point Jesus is making is you have no warning. Now, is that true within the 70th week? No, but it's true when the 70th week breaks out, you have no idea. Verses 45 through 51, there's an unexpected return of the master of the house. When do they expect him? They don't know. It could be at any time. They have to be ready. Greg, therefore remain and watch. Be on alert. And then, by the way, this goes all the way into even Matthew 25, verses 1 through 3, the parable of the ten virgins. You have five that are ready, five are not. The idea is when the bridegroom comes back, he came back imminently to take his bride to be where? To be in the father's house. Right? Just as John 14 was teaching. There's five that are ready and five that are not. Why are the five not ready? Well, they're not found in the faith. That's the image. Because of the imminent return of the bridegroom. So, six different ways Jesus says you can't know the coming of the 70th week of Daniel. Once you're in the 70th week, you'll know. But the 70th week of Daniel, you cannot know when that's going to come. Now, with that, I rest my case. Does anybody have any questions, thoughts, concerns? Dan. Oops. Oops, hold on a second. I'm finding out that if this get right, I have a lot of work. <laughs> and it's like this, nice and close. <laughs> yes, I was wondering if these things couldn't um, refer to things at the end of the church age and to the tribulation. Yeah, um, yeah so did everybody hear that question? He's saying... Couldn't these things really refer to both the church age and the tribulation? Certainly we see common things happening. Yes, there's wars and rumors of wars in the church age, and we have them in the tribulation period. The tip-offs that we're dealing specifically within Daniel's 70th week are some of the technical terms, the abomination that causes desolation. He refers to those days of the great tribulation. But the big one is Odin, labor pains. Paul uses Odin specifically about the day of the Lord. So does Jesus. The other tip-off is the famine, pestilence, earthquakes. Those things are used in Revelation chapter 6. Now, what's interesting is that's ultimately a quotation from Ezekiel 14, 21. Because of the idolatry of Israel, God sent four things on them. Famine, pestilence, wild beasts, and the sword. Okay, these are the very things that are talked about in Revelation 6 and the very things that are talked about in Matthew 24. The point is, in Revelation 6, God is not pouring it out on Israel. He's pouring it out on the entire world. It was the wrath of God in Ezekiel 14. It's the wrath of God again. Now, are you and I spared that wrath? Yes. But the whole point is, all the language indicates that we're dealing with Daniel's 70th week and not the church age. So that's his specific focus. So yes, do we see false prophets now? Absolutely. 
But within Daniel's 70th week, what he's saying is Israel's going to get a huge portion of them. And they're going to try to lead these elect Jews, if they could, if possible, away from the true Messiah. And he's saying, no, you can't miss it when I come. You will not miss it. And so he's warning them ahead of time. So I hope that helps. Gotcha. Anybody else? We got a few minutes. Does everybody see that? Oh, yeah, Ralph. Does everybody see that discourse marker then, 2436? That's a key thing, that Perry death. That's what Bob and I were so excited about. I'm trying to throw a good one at you guys, see if you can figure this one out, because I can't. Um, We believe in a trinity, three equal persons but one God. I've always been puzzled by, why is Jesus saying only the Father knows? Yeah. Any, Any thoughts on that? Yeah, remember we have, um, Bob and I, in fact, we did some theology in the last radio episode. Remember, in the hypostatic union of Christ, we have two natures, okay? With the two natures, we have a divine nature and we have a human nature, okay? There was a heretic named Eutyches who would try to separate the natures, okay? You can't separate the natures of Christ. They're united but nor can you fail to distinguish between them. So, for instance, let me give you an example. Sometimes Jesus will act out of his human nature, and sometimes he will act out of his divine nature, okay? And a good example of that is recall when Jesus is in the boat with his disciples, and you have him asleep. He's sleeping in the back of the boat. And you say, well, how can God be sleepy? He's God. Well, his human nature is sleepy, right? But at the very next moment, when he knows his disciples can't handle anymore, he gets up and says, what? Peace be still. And he exercises his divine nature. So if Jesus says he doesn't know, he can speak truly from his human nature and say that he doesn't know. Now, does he know from his divine nature? Absolutely. But remember, he asked questions like, well, where have you laid her? Remember, or where have you laid him with Lazarus? Or no, it was a, it was a girl. Where have you laid her? Lazarus, he knew where he was. Okay, where have you laid her? He's asking a question. Why is he asking a question? He's God. He knows all things. He's from his human nature. He's asking the question. So the point is our Lord can act from either nature. And and I think that's the best answer of that question. That's the hypostatic union. Truly man, truly God, simultaneously. Yep. Does that help? Okay. Anybody else on that or anything else? Well, I'm sorry I threw so much at you, but I just wanted to have you see the entire weightiness of Matthew 24 and let it kind of flow over you. Now, I'll be around all week. I'm not going anywhere. There's nothing to fish out of yet. The water isn't open. So if you have any questions or concerns, feel free to email or call. I'd love to talk to you more about these things. But I promise we will move on next time in our study in Revelation. We'll keep moving ahead in the passage. But I wanted to show you the doctrine of imminence is taught all over the New Testament. It is a real doctrine. And now I think you are better equipped to handle objections by those who say, no, imminence is not a real doctrine. Yes, it is. It really is taught by the New Testament. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you so much that the great promise of your coming and your kingdom and all these glorious things and even our resurrection are imminent and at hand. I ask, Lord, that you would implant this great hope, this great promise in the heart of my brothers and sisters here this morning that we may live godly lives and persevere unto that day. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.